Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. A very special thank you to Medic Specialty Vehicles for sponsoring today's podcast. Go safely, go effectively, go efficiently. Visit Medic's Ambulance to choose a vehicle that is right for your service. That's M-E-D-I-X-A-M-B-U-L-A-N-C-E dot com. It's a supply chain issue. If you've heard it once, you've heard it a million times these days. Equipment, personnel, and most alarmingly now, rolling fleet. We're in a very precarious time right now, folks, and the prospect of immediate relief is not looking overly promising. The crippling long-term effect of a national ambulance shortage cannot be overstated, and there are so many impacts of this. Here to discuss the impacts on the industry with us is Mr. Brian LaCroix. Brian is the co-founder and senior advisor of the Cambridge Consulting Group and has an extensive background in the EMS industry. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Brian, this is not good. This is not good at all. Did we miss something here? Well, you know, I'd like to uh, think sort of in quiet times about this whole idea of disruption. And of course, uh, you know, by definition, you can think about disruption, um, you know, the internet changed how the world performs, right? And that you used to you used to have to have an army or a or or be a be a nation state to have an international reach. And now you know I'm winding the clock back a hundred plus years. Now any kid in their basement with an internet connection has an international reach, really. So that's that's an example of disruption. But COVID, COVID, um, and coupled with some other circumstances, created disruption like we have never seen. So things that might have taken 20 plus years to happen in our environment happened in two, or in some cases less. So I think from an, with this issue of ambulance shortage, we're experiencing some of that. Certainly COVID had an impact, um, the supply chain, and, and as a quick aside, I, I've talked to some leaders in manufacturing and in uh, other industries that are now saying, look, we got to stop using supply chain as an excuse because it's not new it's the new normal. So we got to figure out a new approach. But supply chain's a real issue. And the new approach hasn't been found yet. It hasn't. And yeah, sure, I think that easily branding this as a supply chain, it's just easy to say, right? It's an easy excuse. But, you know, tied into this is the fact of there's no personnel. But if you look, this is a global issue now. It's not just EMS is a microcosm of it. But this is a global issue. We're seeing that there's not enough people in the plants on the assembly line making these vehicles, and it's it's becoming a real issue that we're seeing firsthand. Well, everywhere. I mean, we, we've all heard the expression, the great resignation. Again, um, most folks attribute that as a byproduct of COVID, uh, but it's very true, and it didn't happen only because of COVID. COVID may have been the grain of sand that hit the top of the pile, which knocked it over right but all of these things were in place for a long period of time um mike you know and some of our listeners may know i spent a lot of my career as an operations leader i retired as an ems chief of a large organization where we didn't know how fat and happy we were when we needed to buy seven to twelve ambulances a year that was the fleet turnover that we almost always had right in a fairly large uh, ems operation a fleet of about 100 vehicles and it was pretty much on autopilot you would we had our specs we tweaked things and we did some really uh, innovative things around safety a subject for another day but but so we made some changes but in generally speaking we had specs 
We had a relationship with a vendor. We put in our order. We sometimes bought our own chassis and had them drop shipped to the manufacturer, or we bought them directly from the manufacturer. And boom, six or seven months later, we had a new rig in our base. Right. Uh, of course, that doesn't happen anymore. No, it's not even close. And, and it's funny you say that because, again, my background is in operations. I own an ambulance service and the same exact thing. You needed an ambulance. If you got a six-month turnover, a six-month turnaround on receiving that ambulance, we're like, oh, come on, you can't do better right, than that? Right, Well, that's not even in the cards anymore. Yeah, so what we're seeing now, of course, is two, three years. Correct. Yes, two, two and a half or three years. And, and that, I know that, I know that a lot of people know that, but I'm also aware a lot of people aren't, do not know that or don't want to accept it. It is, that's the timeline we're looking at right This now. is the issue that I'm going to, that I'm going to ask you. This is not sustainable, and I don't know that people are giving it the attention that it actually requires. Because saying, oh, it's two, people, oh, they're up in arms, it's going to be two to three years to get, get out of here, that's a, no, that's that's reality right now. Yeah. What are we going to do to combat this? Yeah, I think that that this is the time for folks that are in areas of accountability to uh, maintain or acquire fleets, or even a field paramedic out in the street using the rig every day, uh, to raise your awareness and understanding that this is a reality. That we're not going. There's no magic wand to change it. It is here. Uh, you talk to any of the um, large or small manufacturers. And they will all tell you that a key issue right now is, of course, obtaining a chassis, Correct. right? Yeah. So the vast, vast majority of ambulances in North America are put on Ford chassis. And I want to come back and talk about Ford Motor Company, who sometimes gets bashed, but frankly, they're the only one that's still paying attention to them, mm -hmm. to us in EMS. Yep. So they deserve, um, they deserve our partnership, not our condemnation. But that's, uh, we'll get back to that. Um, they they are not in a position to supply chassis for a number of reasons. All the things that you said, supply chain, microchips, labor issues, um, all of the above. And 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 as you you just pointed out, now their own production issues around staffing that isn't just unique to one um, career field. It's oh, everywhere. everywhere. So a month, excuse me, a month. I wish a year to get a chassis plus maybe a year and a half. And then you finally do get it in the hands of a provider or a manufacturer, and manufacturers are in similar, you know, facing similar issues. So you're going to tack on another year, maybe six months if you're lucky. Once a manufacturer has a chassis, but six to twelve plus month months for them to build the box that goes on the chassis. Right. So it is a two, two and a half plus year venture. And let's look at the downstream effects of this. And, and, and really, I think that's what's important when you're talking about the provider. You know, the provider is the individual that goes out there on a daily basis and does their job. And they don't necessarily need to think about these issues. But now we're put in a safety situation. And, and I know that you're very high and key on safety um, issues and those things that are facing the provider. But, Brian, if we can't get an ambulance for two to three years down the line... And this ambulance should be placed out of service, in theory, on lifespan this year. We're running these ambulances a lot longer than we need to, and it's going to have reciprocal effects on safety and the provider. It, it might, but it doesn't have to. Okay. Talk um, to it, certainly, it certainly is a problem. I'm not, not minimizing the problem, and there are places there will definitely be safety issues. But here's the deal, folks. We need to uh, understand... This is the 
reality we're facing. So what has to be different? If we can't replace the ambulance, there are no other options than keeping it on the road for longer than you might have wanted to. So how do you do that? Um, agencies that have preventative maintenance programs, <laughs> boy, they need to be ratcheted up. And agencies that don't and don't even know what I'm talking about, stand up and pay attention. Because yep. if you don't know when you expect your fuel pump to fail on a rig, you should because right. you ought to replace it the week before it fails, not the week after, right? So that's what good preventive maintenance programs do for you. But but from a, from a so that that's a, a leadership issue, sure. you might say. But if you and I are on a crew and we show up and we jump in a rig, what's our what's our opportunity to help with this problem? And there and we have those opportunities. We pay attention. Maybe maybe it, the problem that we would pass off on a supervisor or a fleet manager, if you have one or whoever, needs to become our problem. And and I say that recognizing the 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 stuff we're putting on every frontline provider right now continues to pile on. Yes. This is going to be one of those additional things. So providers can do things like pay more attention to how you drive. Uh, the way that we drive uh, has a direct impact on the life of lifespan of a vehicle. Uh, pay attention to vehicles' problems, the small ones that you can report up the line so that hopefully they can be addressed before they keep become big ones. And those folks who are in positions of accountability in supervisory roles or fleet management roles, um, the whole idea of minimizing critical events is uh, needs to be top of mind, I would su suggest. And by definition, a critical event is an interruption of service, either responding to or while caring for a patient in your vehicle. It's, it ought to, you know, in an ideal world, it's a never event. It never happens, but we know it does. Correct. So focusing on critical failures and doing everything that we can at all levels in an organization to minimize their occurrence, uh, I think, is the name of the game for two, three, some people, my goodness, it pains me to say it, are talking five years. Yeah, it's insane. You know, we were talk before we came on, we were talking offline, and you referenced uh, the importance of a true fleet manager, right? You said, like, you know, as an EMS, right, we do so many collateral-type duties. That's what we are, you know. But you were dealing with an individual or, or you knew of an individual that was a true fleet manager someday it really came in it's ironic but these this situation we find ourselves in may open opportunities may open up opportunities for people to step in and take a more critical role in keeping an agency afloat I, I think there's a lot of truth to that um, the the story that I share that you reference has to do with my learning I mean I I, I, I had the gift of leading a large uh, EMS organization but I'm one of those guys that came up through the ranks right so I, I came into EMS, and as a young paramedic, I remember, you know, uh, thinking that my service was good despite leadership, and then I became the leader. Of course. So, yeah, of course. So, so when you're the leader, um, it's, it's hard. It can be hard. Humbling. And, and humbling is a perfect word. <laughs> so one of the humbling periods of time for me was recognizing I didn't know how to manage a fleet. Right. And here I ended up with a fleet of 100 ambulances and about 12 uh, operations vehicles and, you know, on and on. Uh, so, um, one of the things, I've, I've often said I'm not the brightest person in the world that from a leadership standpoint, but one of the things I did is hire someone smarter than me. The greatest leader is the one that surrounds himself with the best people. And Mike, I went outside of our industry. I, I found someone who was a trucking fleet manager in the trucking industry, and my eyes were opened uh, big time because what I learned, and in retrospect, you might kind of do the palm to the forehead saying, duh, this is, you know, 
trucking industry has a lot of this stuff nailed down. So if you think about it, you know, the, uh, lots of advocates for, for truckers in different uh, venues will talk about the truck. Trucking is the lifeblood of America, and it's true. Mm -hmm. Good services and even people move by truck all the time every day. And if that, well, you know, a little peak in the interruption and some of that and uh, with during COVID um, pointed that out in ways we'd never experienced yeah, before. True. But the trucking industry has uh, really refined the idea of specking out their vehicles, um, acquiring them and building relationships with providers and manufacturers and uh, vendors, uh, the operations of them, and then the disposition. So what do you do when they're at their end of life? And uh, in my experience, I learned that uh, a fleet manager who came from the trucking industry brought tremendous uh, depth to an organization of folks whose uh, ambulance fleet was being run by a bunch of paramedics. <laughs> and, and that is not unusual, as we no, know, right? No. Uh, you know, good paramedics get promoted over their skis all the time. And this was an example of that in my shop. And we brought in a, a guy from the trucking industry. So the take-home point of all of that is that sometimes it's, it's helpful to look beyond your navel and say, hey, is somebody else doing vehicle maintenance better than I am? In the case of ambulances, absolutely. It's not just trucking industry, um, uh, military. Uh, so if there are people within your organizations who have, who have a logistics experience in the military, tap on the shoulder, ask them for their opinion or their experiences, see what we can learn. Um, it, it, it could come from places that you might not otherwise expect. For sure. Let's pivot really quickly with respect to this topic and then the financial implications, right? So EMS, as, it's, as it stands alone, has certainly never been flush, right? It, it certainly hasn't been something that stood on its own and, and was solvent beyond its years. Now you factor this in, right? And there's a lot of different pieces to this, right? So the OEMs are telling us that, listen, production is down, inquiries and orders are up this is going to increase you know delivery three potentially as we were saying three to five years which is going to make you keep your ambulance in service that much longer which is going to increase expenses on fixing units right so that's number one right so in, in an industry that's already hurting fiscally and financially we're increasing expenses on keeping our fleet on the road and then you tie in how do we keep this ship afloat? Because there has been no increase in subsidy from the way that we maintain our industry, which is through insurance and, and getting paid and reimbursed. This all fits in now. It's really starting to become clear that we're in a really big dilemma. Well, clearly we are funded through uh, uh, pretty simple means, right? Uh, some agencies receive tax support Many don't. Probably half of all licensed services in the United States do not and are strictly fee-for-service um, or some combination thereof. Sure. Either way, it's often not enough to cover all expenses. We know that and you just spoke to it. Now you pile on one more thing. Um, we, we also know through uh, some very good research that's been done, there's precious little uh, research in most any area in EMSs, but there's a growing body, so thanks to people like UCLA and others, uh, any uh, MSP folks, uh, we are growing our body of research in understanding not only clinical um, impacts of uh, paramedicine, but also operational. And one of the things operationally we know is that keeping an ambulance longer on the road does not save you any money. 
Um, some suggest there's a number of about 150,000 miles on a vehicle when it's a pay me now or pay me lady, later proposition. Okay. In other words, if you replace an ambulance at a certain mileage marker, and, and that's one measure, there's others out there, some people may have their own opinion, but whatever that is for you, if you replace it, rather than try to keep it on the road, you're actually going to save money in the long term. So what that means is that if you're trying to get 200, 300,000 miles out of a vehicle, it is. it does not mean it's cheaper than buying a new one. It's actually probably more expensive. For sure. So mindful of that. It's, it, there's no magic bullet to fix it. But if you're not even aware of it, major problem going into it. Well, and I'd argue also, Brian, that it's also relative, right? So, yes, you use those those marks as 150 or greater. You're not going to be saving money. You're going to be paying more money because of what you have to put in to fix it. Now, there's going to be so many more units that need to be fixed because we're forced to keep sure. them that the prices of fixing those vehicles are going to go up as well because they're going to be overwhelmed. They're going to be inundated with this. So, again... These are all the downstream effects that are coming from this that I'm not 100% sure we're factoring in just yet. I feel it's a surface level thing that's really going to come to a head in short order. And just like the consumer market of used passenger vehicles, used ambulances are going to continue to go higher in price. So the, the measure of uh, a maintenance cost that's a simple one is cost per mile driven. So if you do it right and add up all the right all the stuff you're supposed to, that you put into a vehicle and divide it by the miles driven, not the miles on a call, but total miles driven, you'll get a cost per mile. And at that, there is a magic number, it can vary, but it's around that 150 to 200,000 mark. At that point, keeping a rig on the road, your cost per mile goes up because of all those things we just spoke about. It's not gonna go away. So what can you do? This is a really doom and gloom conversation, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, you're not (laughs) kidding. But here's a couple things. Uh, You know, talk about disruption. Uh, did, Did, we ever think that the growth of mobile integrated healthcare, while it was all the rage five, six years ago, nobody figured out how to pay for it. COVID has changed some of that. Right. So that's one example, um, and I, it's not a panacea, but it's one example of ways in which we respond less to True. calls that we might have otherwise. True. Are there things in people, in folks' organizations that, that you might look at to drive less miles, to go on fewer calls appropriately? And again, none, and none of those are easy fixes, but that's, I think, what it's going to take. It's going to take a multifaceted approach from operations, from finance, from the community, and from you know our our our, our the the staff uh, that yeah. that we all work with every day that is going to get us through. Let me ask you this, Bry, as we start to wrap up here. We obviously realize the problem exists. We obviously realize we have to act. Where is the advocacy on the federal level? What are some of these channels that we can start to look to poke a little bit and to explore to say, hey, listen, folks, this is not just an issue in Michigan. This is not just an issue in New Jersey. This is a nationwide issue that is truly going to come to a head. And we're going to be left with agencies that that can't respond, right? We'll have fly cars at best. I'm I'm glad you raised that because it's important for for people to think about. uh, Here again, like this whole topic, there's not a single approach. However, listeners might be encouraged to think about talking to their elected officials. Uh, As always, we encourage folks to have those relationships. But on this topic, here's here's what I think is important. It's not about bashing providers. I mentioned Ford Motor Company earlier where most of us get our chassis. They are the only major manufacturer that still serves us. So 
And by the way, if they made all of the ambulances that are sold historically, you know, in a normal market post COVID in this crisis, it would take two days of their production time to do all ambulances. The rest of their whole production is on other vehicles. Point being, there's there's tens of uh, perhaps I don't know this this actual number, but I was going to say millions, infinitely more passenger vehicle, industrial vehicles, trucks, etc. Then there are ambulances. There's only about historically about 4,000 ambulances built in North America in any given year. That's a drop in the water compared to everything else that's built. So when you talk to public officials, elected officials about this issue, the, the question might be, is there something we can do to A, help the manufacturers produce more or encourage them to produce in a priority manner so that our market uh, the manufacturers of the ambulances we ultimately use get first dibs on some of those chassis. Now there's different opinions about all that, but and it and it's not one answer. So that's why it's important for individuals to talk to elected officials in their state or region, because your answer may be different in Michigan than it is in Nevada. Advocacy starts with us, as with everything in this industry, Brian. And as stated in the beginning. This is a very concerning issue, and it, and we will certainly need to figure it out in the short term and in short order, but we're going to have to do it ourselves, and we're going to have to use constructive ways to battle this dilemma we find ourselves in. Again, Brian LaCroix, thank you for joining us today, and a very special thank you to Medics Ambulance for sponsoring today's podcast, Medics Ambulances, safely delivering effective and efficient ambulances. Thanks again, Brian. Thanks much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Talk soon on another episode of EMS World Podcasts. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 